Hi-dee-ho, ladies and gents, and welcome to the Agent Carter radio program by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me each week is one real ace, Pete. What's buzzing, cousin? Hey, Matt. How are you? Hello, everybody. Uh, you can say I'm a regular, a regular what, though Matt's not al- exactly allowed to say. Tonight, <laughs> we're taking a look at Agent Carter, episode 101, The Pilot. Okay, and this is brought to us by the people at the L&L Automat. When you're south of 23rd Street and you're looking for a 21-day piece of pie, stop in L&L. You'll probably regret it later. Pie sure tastes delish. And by the way, everyone, we are serving up a double dose tonight. We're podcasting episodes 101 and 102 together as it was broadcast here in the U.S. But don't worry if you've only seen the first episode on home video or international release. We're going to keep the first half of our podcast focused on episode 101. It'll be spoiler free. You can check the episode description for where the 102 discussion starts if that's where you'd like to pick up. And with that, Pete, continuing on focusing on episode 101. In this segment, we run down the top stories of the episode and give you the latest and greatest in the need to know. Pete, what's our tippity top? Our tease features a pretty well done montage between the climactic scene in Captain America, the first Avenger, where Steve Rogers realizes he's not going to get that dance with uh, Peggy Carter. He's got to bury the uh, the Red Skull, Hydra's Valkyrie into the polar ice cap, thus beginning his 70 year rest as a capsicle Um, and very effectively cut here. You know, we get the whistling of of the air coming past the cockpit and we have the whistle of uh peggy carter's uh tea kettle fading the radio is on and uh she's flipping through the papers here she notices that um you know captain america's ally uh is yet to explain weapon sale and we know immediately there is some issue here going on with um tony stark's father Howard. And Pete, I am sure over the course of these eight episodes of Agent Carter, we are going to refer to Howard Stark as Tony Stark or vice versa. So strap in everybody for that. It's the facial hair and the debonair. What can we say? Um, But uh, we see that Peggy's got scars on her shoulder. Uh, She flips through the papers again. There's now been three days of testimony going on with Howard Stark on Capitol Hill. And this is very uh, well intercut with footage of her one shot. Um, Although it seems, Matt, that we're in the SSR days and that the events that are taking place in this special seven part series that ABC is broadcasting predate what we've seen in the Marvel one shot. And that's not been publicly uh, addressed anywhere that I've seen. Here was the take I had. And I certainly would agree that if you've seen the one shot, there's a little, well, the one shot ends with 
hey, she's going to go run the SSR with, uh, or she, pardon me, she's going to go run Shield with uh, with Tony um, Stark. <laughs> with Howard, Howard Stark. Stark. There we See, go. There Ding, we're going to put a quarter in the jar. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Pete, it's 1946. Why don't you just put a nickel in the jar? Okay, <laughs> we're not all able to throw quarters around here, you know. Um, initially, I was first thinking, you know, that they just kind of dialed back the the uh, potency of her going to run things herself um, with with uh, Howard Stark. But having thought it through and really realized at the end of the one shot, she is off to go run S.H.I.E.L.D. That is correct, right, Pete? Yes. It's specifically in, S.H.I.E.L.D. In Washington, D.C. Right. So. And she's she's with the SSR now. So, yes, this must be before the one shot. I find it slightly confusing. It, in that- it is. And Bradley Whitford's absence here in his place, uh, at least as far as the chief uh, dually character, we have Shea Wingham, ex of uh, Boardwalk Empire. Um, so it is a little confusing. I'm hoping the producers are going to address where exactly in the timeline this fits. But you know what? It works. And um, e- even though we saw footage from the one shot of her kicking butt in the uh, – in the Zodiac, um, you know, warehouse and, and stuff like that. So we can make the assumption based on footage we've seen that it's after, but again, it's not canonical, so to say. Um, Peggy has a roommate, one Colleen Deirdre, and uh, she's been on her feet all day to the point where she can no longer fee- feel them. There's discussion of TB running amok in these days. Um, Luckily, we'll beat all those with vaccines one day. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jenny McCarthy. Um, And, uh, you know, the discussion about being an independent woman versus a spinster comes up. Um, And, uh, you know, um, Colleen says, you know, what you're doing at the phone company, it's not life and death. And Peggy, of course, says, darling, you have no idea. And of course, that that notion of independent lady versus spinster is all uh, done while Peggy is starting to pack heat uh, as she gets ready for for that job. And uh, with that, Pete, we're off to the races. We get the title card. We do. Act one uh, features the uh, iconic image that we've seen in the run up to this uh, premiere of Peggy Carter clad in her uh, beautiful blue dress with that standout red hat against a very drab 1940s New York, uh, you know, streetscape. Uh, we get the the line from the um, New York Bell Company, um, you know, uh, phone mistress, love the hat. But then we realize that this is all just a front for the SSR um, and that fabled red light from the one shot goes off again with the klaxon and the chief tells her to uh to cover the phones which again confusing in the timeline because in the one shot she wasn't covering the phone she was answering the phones and then she was kicking butt and i indeed in that moment i thought that it was kind of a a look backwards in terms of hey cover the phones and she's She's going to say, you know, hey, forward all calls to the briefing room because that's where we're going in there. And no, she's now in charge. But again, I'm confused why they did this to confuse us. Although if we just focus on this episode, I'm certainly not saying, Pete, let's not have this discussion. But just focusing, you know, within this episode, hey, this is where we're starting, where, you know, she's capable of of more than is being asked of her. Um, There she is, you know, kind of 
back on the phones and back filing right. uh, for the SSR. Right. And, you know, if you've listened to our other podcasts, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, uh, our pop culture podcast, uh, you already know the deal. But if you are finding us with the Agent Carter podcast here for the first time, um, you're going to know that Fantastic Geek, we shoot it down the middle. While we are admittedly fans of Marvel, specifically the cinematic universe, we're going to call things as we see them as they are, not kiss up here and uh that criticism um it bears mentioning okay it doesn't ruin what's going on here um so howard stark is the subject of a newsreel shown in this um meeting and uh love love the uh the terminology there the fly boys taking a nosedive they show him in his testimony he's he's snappy just as his son will be um you know eight decades later uh on Capitol Hill, and we find out that six items have hit the black market, um, and Stark has now suddenly been a no-show on the Hill. Half a dozen of his houses, half a dozen of his apartments have been searched. He's nowhere to be found. Agent Thompson uh, brings up the fact that Agent Carter was Captain America's... um, Liaison. Pause, liaison, you know, yeah. the, the implication there are quite clear. Yes, and the well-meaning Agent Sousa, I believe his first name was somewhere in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean, yeah, he, he, he's the man of equality. That's what Sousa is, yes. although, of course, Peggy Carter uh, is so into equality that she says she doesn't need help kind of, uh, you know, protecting her own turf uh, and whatnot. Yes. Come to find that Agent Sousa with the limp there lost a leg in the big one. With that, Pete, we are off uh, back to the the automat. And just side note, where have all the automats gone? And further side note, I thought automats didn't require waitresses, but heck, it's uh, it's fun to see Angie the waitress uh, there. There's kind of fun dialogue about earning your way and paying your dues. We clearly know that that's the trajectory that uh, Peggy Carter is on. Um, and then uh, then Pete, a mysterious man, steps out of the shadows. Although not too mysterious for those of us who were at New York Comic Con in October. Correct. We instantly recognize this as um, Howard Stark's butler, Edwin Jarvis, played for us, Matt, by... James Darcy. Ah, yes, James Darcy, of course. And uh, with that reveal that he is uh, Jarvis in the in the flesh, we then uh, we then get to a scene, uh, most of which we had seen at New York Comic Con, supposedly shown a week after it was shot. Um, <laughs> Although I did get a sense there were, and again, we couldn't record because of all the Marvel security. Um, I did get a sense that we saw one cut of it. And things were different, but again, we've we've seen this, and I had no ability to record or to uh, to take notes what happened. Um, but the substance of this scene, uh, Howard is explaining that uh, previously said he knew we should have called at the end of Act One. There, he's explaining uh, before we get to the pier that his bad babies, these adventure inventions he's deemed too dangerous to let out, uh, have gotten out. He was in Monaco when he returned home. There was a hole in his vault that he followed to a sewer. He trusts Peggy here. 
um, and he has a case with him. He's headed overseas. There's a paper for his formula for molecular uh, nitramine, which can level a city block. And um, he's really worried about the repercussions of this in light of the scrutiny he faces at home. Uh, he explains that his butler, Edwin Jarvis, is going to help Peggy and that he's off to track down the dozen fences or so who are capable of handling material this hot. He, what I had found surprising when we first saw most of that scene at New York Comic Con, and I know it was also, I think, put online or maybe uh, during Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I don't quite recall, um, but this notion of, and I'm off. Uh, I was surprised to see in the credits that Dominic Cooper is credited as uh, a guest actor. Again, I think for the purposes of a, um, you know, an eight episode show, there's a certain degree where it's just semantics. But um, the f I guess I expected more of him in it, particularly, I guess, coming off of the, the one shot where I thought it was going to be like a team effort. But, I, you know, the show, the show, settling into what it wants to be as he kind of boats off and uh and exits from the story for a time definitely we pick up that um edwin uh jarvis and uh peggy exchange pleasantries she's uh you know sorry that she cold cocked him before he's worried about the concussion he might be developing and he lays down the law as far as getting to bed by nine and everything that works there and uh peggy explains that that's just when she's going to work meanwhile daniel susa um is uh still hard at work on the case with the uh the fugitive stark and Peggy begins to lead him in the wrong direction, covering, of course, for her friend and confidant. Um, though Sousa says that most fugitive cases are solved within the first 72 hours, she explains that Howard Stark cannot swim, though there is a picture of him on a speedboat with a beautiful blonde. What else is new? <laughs> It was nice to see in this scene, just in terms of the functions of a pilot and getting to know everybody. Sousa definitely has been given some mid, uh, mid-level work here. Um, he's excluded in what becomes the next scene where uh, Thompson and, uh, and some of the other agents are, um, I guess you could say in a conference room, you know, it's kind of got the, got the, glass, uh, the glass windows to it. But um, just kind of making it clear, you know, where Sousa is on the, on the, um, the totem pole. And uh, where some of these star agents like Agent Thompson uh, reside. Definitely. Um, the subject of Spire Raymond comes up and Sousa has tipped Carter off to this meeting. And she goes in there so that she can refill the coffee. Um, the thing I found here, Matt, you know, and, and we talk about the setting here in the, you know, mid to late 1940s and the sexism and how, um, Haley Atwell's Peggy Carter so successfully beats that, but she can't beat it unless we lay it out first. And it's there, not just as subtext, it's there as straight up text, the answering the phones, the refilling of coffee that she's got to elbow her way into this boys club so that she can get on the case. And in this episode and in the second episode, everybody else is very clearly running to keep up with her though. She wears the high heels. 
Indeed, she does. Indeed, she does. <laughs> and Pete, while we're in that uh, in that scene, speaking of uh, you know high heels and other uh, female accoutrements, uh, when she needs to step out of the office <laughs> to continue her you know undercover from SSR uh, investigation here to you know only help save the world, what's the excuse that she gives? Kind of you know to put it in men's terms, she throw da- throws down the card of. It's ladies' problems, which immediately ladies' uh, things, Matt. Ladies' things. Ladies' things. Ooh. Yeah, lady. Ladies' problems. I think would would be more specific. Ladies' things. I think put it a little more delicately. Um, With that, Chief Dooley essentially sends her out of the office and says, "Go do what you have to do, like shopping." Yes, yes, because retail therapy apparently fixes ladies things <laughs> um it's a forgivable sin in that it's funny and it defeats the sexism because she's using the sexism against them and that's why though it might seem on the page grown worthy in the delivery of all involved there um you know, and and I have to give props to uh, Shay Wingham. I thought did a a good job. You know, if if you're going to bring in somebody, if he is indeed the replacement for Bradley Whitford's, you know, chief character from the one shot, I think they picked a really good choice. I I loved what he gave us in these first couple episodes. Um, we head to a club where uh, Spider Raymond, a non-judgmental type. Um, gets to meet a stunning blonde who's actually an undercover Peggy Carter. Real wonderful nod here to the time frame in terms of the outfits, in terms of an ensemble scene. Great job. And uh, even down to kind of getting into these uh, old-timey gadgets, uh, hearkening back somewhat to, you know, to having seen some of these uh, gadgets, which are antiques by the time they roll around in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but she, uh, she of course, of course, puts on that uh, sleepy time lipstick, and at that point, the audience is a little bit ahead of the curve, and understandably so. We're just waiting to see, you know, to see her kind of work within the expectations of the the men around her, and uh, to outsmart Spider Raymond, uh, which of course, indeed, happens pretty quickly, and he's uh, on his way to Snoozy Town pretty darn fast. Right. Before that, he's talking to um, a character we find out later is named uh, Leet Brannis, um, a real silent type who's <laughs> wondering, uh, you know, what's what's Stark got there? Are these are these a bombs or these ray guns? I'm always ready to help you uh, liquidate whatever you're trying to get rid of. OK, the uh, the leggy buxom Peggy comes in and uh you know what love the american accent um and with her number 102 sweet dreams uh lipstick she puts him to sleep it was a little premature though matt well hey i guess that's what happens sometimes i did not love her american accent i thought it was kind of a, a little bit too much of the hardening of the r you know hello there i'm here to talk to you but it's it's all it's all good I love fun. it. Um, she takes her watch off. She uses the um, the timepiece to crack into the safe. And what does she find, Matt? A glowing orange grenade-esque device. 
indeed. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that my ears picked up a little bit of the James Bond theme as she was using that gadget. Um, a couple people on Twitter disagreed, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was there. Just, you know, a little da, 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 da. But indeed, Pete, the focus there is the reveal of that uh, mysterious, I, I love how you put it, kind of a glowing grenade, uh, immediately telegraphing to the audience, hey, this is bad, and it's like some, you know, glowy, weird thing. Uh, and then, of course, it's a natural time for an act break. Right. Act three, she's on the phone with uh, Jarvis, and uh, she's saying that, uh, you know, this is beyond uh, theory. It's now a bomb. Um, he asks if it's glowing. And uh, the explanation is that's not ideal. This is indeed the nitramine. And it has a 500-yard blast radius. Um, he explains over the phone, no doubt from Howard Stark, the instructions to denature it. She's going to need some sodium carbonate and uh, acetate which is going to be pretty hard to come up with at this time of night to render this inert. It's then that agents have entered the club. Uh, they're asked if they have warrants or if this is just uh, uh, here to socialize. Um, and before long, Peggy Carter is taking a stapler to somebody who wants to take her. By the way, Pete, I know that we are meant to naturally dislike Chad Michael Murray's Thompson. In that, you know, he's referred to as, you know, the, maybe not literally the star pupil, but he's kind of like the star agent of the office. And let's get another award. Let's get a raise. Fought in Okinawa. Indeed. Um, that said, when he delivers the line, you know, in response to the question, uh, you know, is it social or do you have a search warrant? He just kind of shows his, you know, shows his piece. Uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, this is a guy who's fighting for the right things. It's just, you know, he's in opposition to our gal, Peggy Carter. Um, but, uh, just wanted to give CMM a little, uh, a little shout out there. Exactly. Um, Peggy had turned down a gentleman earlier, uh, to dance. And of course she now takes him up. It's every woman's right. You know, um, meanwhile, uh, spider Raymond is now up and a mustachioed blonde gentleman, um, promptly takes care of him when he sees that the safe is empty. Meanwhile, Peggy winds up back at home. The wig is off. Colleen has also been sent home, and she is sick. And she marvels that Peggy was out, out. Um, and she feels better that her roommate is maybe finally getting over uh, the flame she's been carrying for one missing and presumed lost Steve Rogers. She then goes to the bathroom, Matt. Not to do normal bathroom things, but instead to denature this uh, very potent explosive she's brought home to their apartment. Uh, <laughs> she's able to do it. And you know what? Nothing uh, erases the stress of, uh, you know, handling demical, delicate chemical operations in your bathroom than a nice glass of uh, room temperature water. And um, unfortunately, she gets out to find that Colleen is dead. She's been shot in the head. Um, so she doesn't need to be worried about being sick or potentially having contracted tuberculosis anymore, but there is now this same blonde mustachioed gentleman right behind her. Pete, we've spent a number of, uh, a number of podcasts over the years talking about pilot episodes and the functions that they have to have this particular scene here where she makes the home brew to stop that babam. um, 
it shows what a well-constructed pilot this is because it just comes naturally to her and comes naturally to us as the audience that it's all this, you know, sciencey stuff. Well, you need sodium acetate and so on and so forth. And she just goes home and it's grab some whiskey, grab some this, grab some that, grab some uh, tweezers to take the bits out. And, uh, you know, with that, we see how resourceful she is um, and then narrowly has to uh, up the ante, as you said, Pete, because there's a killer He's calling from inside the apartment. <laughs> Our fourth act features, of course, the fight. And we notice in the fray that he has a Y-shaped scar or tattoo on his neck. Um, she then, in footage we also saw at New York Comic Con in October, boots him out the window, except when she leans over to see the glass on the ground, he's nowhere to be found. Um, she then, of course, Peggy has her uh, catharsis over the body of Colleen. Um, she explains back to back with Jarvis uh, the next day in the automat that um, Colleen had a brother at uh, Guadalcanal that she lost. She only knew her roommate a few months. She's filled with, uh, with guilt here that she gets people killed. And um, Jarvis explains to her the good that she has and the good that she does. And uh, she's wondering, though, is it worth it? And she can't just walk into the SSR with this. She needs to be able to find somebody else who can help her. Jarvis has just the contact in a scientist who identifies that the alloy can only be uh, produced at uh, three refineries, one of which a name we recognize, Matt, Roxon. Indeed, Dr. Banco refers him to Roxon Oil, um, which has more of a storied history in the Marvel comic books uh, than in the movies, but I know that it's spied in the background of uh, the climactic fight in Iron Man, kind of bringing things that we uh, full circle. Um, with that, Pete, the story moves back to the assassin, who it, it is now clear to us um, I cannot speak. And there's just this wonderful scene where um it's the typewriter and the 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 old style razor that is uh hiding part of a uh, of an antenna and the other bits and pieces work together so he can essentially pete send texted messages over the radio could this ever happen for real i don't know um very fringe-esque. This was done uh, with their alternate universe. It was a means of communicating back and forth. Someone would type, and then the typewriter would type on its own back to them. Um, so, you know, very evocative of that. That was noted quite a bit on Twitter. There was one exchange, Matt, I think we need to bear out before we got to the scene of the man who is simply identified at this point as Green Suit. Um, typing to his mysterious boss at Leviathan. But uh, Suser, uh, Suser, <laughs> Susa, excuse me, my, uh, my Jersey accent may be revealing itself in the pronunciation. Uh, Daniel Susa um, talking with uh, Agent Carter there um, when she was looking at pictures of uh, Steve Rogers, um, talked about when he got hit when he was in the war and his regret um, and worrying about what they would say to his father and everything there. 
um, about shipping back two pairs of green socks and an old paperback. Um, they just couldn't find his leg. Um, but I thought that the actor there, um, who is Enver Gojay, um, who ex of Dollhouse and some other uh, Whedon properties in the past, um, did a real good job of humanizing that character to, uh, who at that point had been sympathetic man number one. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a credit to the the plotting and the scripting of this story that it really just feels like the beginning of this, you know, eight episode uh, storyline that it's not kind of, all right, we need to have you understand. We need to have, you know, the new character here who can then lead people around and say, he's the boss, he's the this, he's the that. It, this is just a story that flows very, very organically. Um and surprisingly, is almost at its conclusion of the first hour. It's kind of flowed that smoothly. Right. Um, Act 5 begins at the Roxxon Refinery, which Peggy notes, of course, is pretty well armed for a mothball facility. She jumps the fence with ease, and she's using her handy-dandy Vita Ray tracker trademark uh, to find a lab. Um and that uh, there are two scientists there, the one quiet man from the club, uh, who we later will find out is uh, Leet Branis. Um, the other um, doesn't get a name at this point. Um, and he explains he's taking a big risk. The least the silent man could do is smile. Peggy uh, has a device that uh, flashes and blinds him temporarily. Uh, she chases the, uh, the silent man down and uh, he's in front of a milk truck and it is full of those orange spheres of molecular nitramine. He too has the strange Y-shaped scar or symbol on his neck. And he uses a strange uh, tracheotomy type device to talk in his strange voice like that, he <laughs> explains that Leviathan is coming um, and that she has 30 seconds after he breaks one of the uh, spheres. Um, she tells Jarvis, I think you need to bring the car around. How long do you have? Oh, 20 seconds. Suddenly, Peggy's on the roof. It blows, there's a swirling explosion, and everything sucks inward. Jarvis notes, it would seem it works. <laughs> it that whole scene there at Roxon, it's incredibly compelling. I love how I love how the silent man seems to really kind of hold back. He's letting kind of the Roxon technician do all the heavy lifting, go investigate, pull the gun. It's a way to speak to this character's intelligence uh without um you know, giving him dialogue since he can't. Um, and then just the whole run and gun action bit, the explosion, the implosion. It's just, you know, it's it's great fun. It's great, great fun in uh, in this episode. Uh, Thompson, Agent Thompson later is with uh, Chief Dooley. They're tracking down the blonde who appears in the photo from the club. Um, and... Uh, uh, Chief Dooley is so happy he's thinking of kissing Agent Thompson. But whoa, whoa, none of that funny stuff here in the 40s, Matt. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, uh, that's I don't know. That's that's 
I say applesauce to that. <laughs> um, Roxon has uh, has blown up here, and uh, you know there's the gentleman with the waitress in the automat again, um, who earlier was given uh, Angie some guff. Uh, he explains that he spent three weeks in a POW camp, and uh, honey, do you know the difference between real eggs and powder? Okay, uh, and by the way, your brains ain't your best feature. Uh, Peggy, again, defeating the sexism so well and so fervently, goes over. She presses a fork to his brachial artery, she explains, and uh, that he should tip generously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, uh, I think uh, he certainly gets what is coming to him, and uh, I was keen to see him kind of exiting the story. Um, and, of course, it's nice just to see uh, this little bit of story serves to let Peggy kind of reinforce her strength as a, as a woman in this uh, man's world, um, but also kind of give a little extra connection there to Angie, who uh, there seems to be a budding friendship between the two gals. The episode ends with uh, Jarvis on the on the phone in a car. Imagine that, Matt, um, helping um, a departed Howard Stark with a drink recipe, of course, and explaining that our Agent Carter is performing well. And that he has no reservations at all in a rather ominous tone there. Ominous indeed. And uh, Pete, with that, we'll start to dig a little bit deeper. Pete, what lunkheads deserve some time in the joint? This list of baddies will tell us just that. Who are our, who are our villains in episode 101? Well, only because of the way he first appears and we go into an act break, not quite knowing Jarvis, Edwin Jarvis at first takes on the appearance of a foe and Peggy lays him right out. I thought it was a very effective introduction for somebody we now know who's on the good side or is he given that rather ominous statement at the end of the episode? The guy does like to be in bed, Matt. By a certain time, where is that cover? Dun, dun, dun. Well, I actually have a, a theory to share about that, but I'll share it in a moment. Um, we, of course, have our have our two uh, apparently tracheotomied uh, guys who certainly are uh, are deserving of the lineup. Although, uh, although, well, I guess more more can be said about them in the future. But yes, uh, not a- named in this episode. Neither of them. We know them just as. Laryngectomy Leviathan dudes. <laughs> but I mean, kind of <laughs> silent killers is, uh, is not a bad, uh, a bad duo of, uh, of, uh, of bad guys. You know what else is a sign silent killer, Matt? What's that? Pete? Them cigarettes. Is it? I thought that they were all healthy. I thought that most doctors said it was a okay in 1946. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're buying into that. Um, one of our um, Leviathan uh, chaps was played for us here by James Frain, um, famously of uh, a not too long of a arc on True Blood, but played a really you know scene chewing character. I, I just wish we got to hear this guy's natural voice because he had absolutely killed it um, on that show in particular. Uh, but rather familiar. I knew the minute I saw him, I'd seen him in something. It, you know, 
checking the IMDb and everything else, trying to make sure you pay attention to the story. And by the way, we're live tweeting and everything else. So uh, it just becomes a little bit of an issue. But eagle-eyed viewers noted that as well. Spider Raymond as well. Uh, and, you know, he departs in this episode. He's somebody who winds up on our radar as far as not knowing where uh, his intentions are kind of an intermediary, although he was certainly certainly looking to uh, move, uh, if not outright purchase, these uh, Stark technologies. It seems that Spider Raymond, Spider Raymond, thinks he can do whatever a Spider Raymond can do, but then Spider Raymond gets squashed. Wow. Heat with that. Let's move on. Classified Top Secret. Holy mackerel, time to take a gander at what the G-Men don't want you to know. Pete, where should we start? Molecular nitramine. In some way related, there are Vita rays in it. And again, um, people uh, who have been around the Marvel Cinematic Universe will make the connections to Captain America and his super soldier serum um from uh dr erskine which was later attempted by bruce banner and of course resulted in uh the incredible hulk um but used as a weapon and the way that it works and did we notice matt that it brought everything in the idea of molecules and it's funny. There's this movie coming this summer after what will be the highest grossing movie in uh, 2015 in May, Avengers Age of Ultron. But there is maybe a smaller movie coming that <laughs> might have uh, molecular implications. I guess as they say, Pete, it's all connected. Yes. And, you know, if you stuck around and you watched the second episode, which I don't know how you couldn't uh, of course you were treated to the teaser trailer for ant-man which we will examine in detail in our second uh episode here uh bridge and tunnel but um you know there's no doubt in my mind that this is connected um they are going to have um Haley atwell uh, appear not just in avengers age of ultron she will make an appearance her 60s incarnation um, in the Ant-Man movie this summer alongside Michael Douglas. So, you know, bravo for uh, Haley Atwell for getting this, you know, eight-episode series here from, you know, a character who appeared in the very first Captain America movie. She got to reprise it in the second in, you know, one scene, essentially, you know, two shots. They showed her in the 50s or I think it was the seventies actually it was the archival footage. And, uh, you know, now to where she's appearing in multiple movies and, and the TV show. And, uh, you know, I, I really do feel that this show, while it's on a limited run is going to make her, uh, a superstar. I, I totally agree. And, uh, it's worth mentioning, you know, this has been presented as a limited series. Uh, it has been observed by smart people uh, online that, successful limited series might come back you know for second seasons or or what it might be but it's kind of also a way to hedge your bet and say no we just only ever wanted to do the eight and that was it so it's not quite a renew now uh situation 
Uh, Pete, here's one theory I have for you, and it kind of can split a couple different ways. Mrs. Jarvis, unseen, um, is that something that in the course of uh, the next seven episodes um, that might become an issue? Either maybe it's just a playful bit of writing a la the unseen Maris character in Frasier, uh, or maybe, you know, is something done with it? I don't quite know what the something could be, but the fact that she is heard, you know, uh, uh, Jarvis is making the souffle for her, uh, so she's heard off screen. Do we do something with that in uh, the remaining precious story uh, time that we have left? Matt, new listeners might not know the uh, tremendous pressure I operate under when it comes to this podcast. Well, I mean, you, of course, are a spoiler, Pete. And, you know, understanding what that means is that I consume everything I can about these shows uh, and these movies beforehand. I like to watch in an informed way. And you know what? If that ruins plot points, I just find out things before everybody else. And having watched, um, you know, these two episodes and the Ant-Man trailer in one sitting several days ago, and rewatching them again tonight and knowing what I do about the coming episodes of the series, Matt, I can tell you undoubtedly it'll be addressed. Ooh, fair enough. Pete, with that, we will now move on to the second episode, uh, which had aired right after the first. In fact, even before the nine o'clock hour, Pete, what was episode one Oh two called bridge and tunnel. News of the And, of course, in this segment, we're going to run down the latest and greatest in the need to know. Pete, take it from the top. This episode, and I appreciate how they held this back, and it must have been tremendous pressure to not put it in the pilot. But this episode begins with a little Captain America adventure program radio play that I think was too cheeky to put in the pilot just because, as we've mentioned before, there's so much you have to service and they had done, you know, a, a fair handed job of introducing, reintroducing Peggy Carter and catching you up to date with Howard Stark and what had happened with Steve Rogers, Captain America and everything there before you're satirizing it here in this second episode. Um, but in the Captain America adventure program, of course, because uh, Captain America is on a uh, a 70 year cruise around the Arctic, um, you know, they can take liberties with his character and they certainly take liberties with, uh, you know, triage nurse Peggy Kata. <laughs> in fact, I wasn't sure if they at one point had changed her name in the in, in the radio program, um, but. It was it was a fun reminder that unlike some of these other um, you know superheroes who are only kind of revealed to the world in uh, in you know the the two thousands that Captain America is an old character Captain America you know within the Marvel Cinematic Universe Captain America is an old character a public character somebody about which uh, you know comic books and trading cards and the like have been made so of course there's going to be a Captain America Adventure Hour where it's just squeaky clean, super sanitized. Uh, and we get to see, Pete, the behind the scenes of a radio <laughs> program, which felt very surreal indeed. We operate but, out of but, a studio almost identical to uh, to that. We just don't have kind of the 
hams to slap for for sound effects. Well, speak for yourself, Matt. Um, and when they were uh, making Hitler see the stars and stripes, those lousy krauts there, um, it certainly felt real as far as an experience. Um, but soon we see that uh, Peggy is with Angie again in the automat. And, uh, you know, there's talk of uh, maybe becoming neighbors, maybe even roommates being nearby. And um, then... Peggy realizes she might be getting too close when she sees Colleen Deirdre, her departed, her deceased roommate's obituary in the morning paper. And the guilt returns there. Um, later on, she is uh, touring uh, one of the uh, Stark residences. Of course, uh, Jarvis is quick to point out this isn't a primary Resonance. This was just for entertaining Matt. Um, and what I call uh, my notes as Stark's Lady Houses. <laughs> I like it. Uh, that that w will officially now become a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what better on the uh, boudoir in the Stark Lady House uh, numero one than uh, a Russian sable uh, throw? Yes, references made to. Uh, um enjoys romantic endeavors um but then pete she pulls out another another plaything of uh, of howard stark the the doctor's outfit and immediately you know peggy says something where the effect of you know oh i could use this and we're once again kind of the audience is asked to be slightly ahead of the story and we go oh she's gonna go undercover as like a doctor or something in probably right. a couple scenes which she later does of course with the uh <laughs> With the milk truck, but, uh, you know, the theatrical element that, of course, Howard Stark enjoys in his uh, his love life um, goes without saying. Um, we then see our mysterious uh, one of our mysterious uh, laryngectomy um, or laryngotomy. There's a couple different ways uh, it's it's seen. Um uh, patients, uh, the man in the green suit, the one with the mustache, typing on his mysterious typewriter. And there is reference to the thief, Leet Brannis, um, the person on the other end, our Leviathan, um, unseen to this point, uh, grows impatient. The man in uh, the green suit takes out a diary and he writes some stuff down. We don't see it. And the next thing we see is intercut an exchange where he is interrogating, which is interesting because he can't talk. He's interrogating with a knife uh, a man who brings up Leet Brannis's name. Um, and he mentions Gino DeLucia Bensonhurst, which, of course, was written in the diary there. Um, a note comes across, a message comes across the typewriter to eliminate all opposition to which of course the man in the green suit kills this informant and then he steps over an already dead lady just like he killed colleen deirdre peggy's roommate this man in the green suit matt he a real lady killer <laughs> so true and it was such an incredibly effective scene um I mean, I'll just kind of move in reverse here to see the body of that woman. I kind of just read it as as the wife um, just kind of sh showed the savagery of this man um, that he's not just kind of offing goons, but also the wives of goons. 
by the way, Pete, and I could I could be wrong here or it could be subject to debate, but I took the the use of that text typewriter uh, in the scene. I kind of took that as intercut, kind of going back in time. That is to say, he, he was getting all these instructions as opposed to he's sitting there and feeding it back and getting more information. Um, either way, just a ton of fun. What a great story block as as writers, as producers that they've given themselves where they have a guy who can't who can't write. So he's coming out with these cards, which he's apparently pre-prepared. And it, it, it just adds adds a low-level menace to it that I have not seen on television before. It does. And it 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 watches Matt better than it reads. So that that's why the recap of it, I think you know, for us to take notes on it, on something we've watched and then to bring it back up here, it's not the most effective way to maybe explain this type of storytelling. So to the viewer, to the listener, of course, we'll apologize, but there's really no other way to get at it. Um, Peggy then, of course, utilizes um, Chekhov's uh, doctor's outfit and uh, goes undercover (laughs) as uh, a um, health inspector, again, with her American accent. And she's checking out these um, Daisy Clover Dairy Farms milk trucks, evaluating the quality of their milk stuffs. When Matt, of course, we know she's using her handy-dandy Vita-Ray detector trademark to find the exact signature of anybody who has been around the molecular uh, stuff, niametrator. It's, it's hard to say. <laughs> kind of the, the molecular residue of the Vita bomb, yes. as I call it. Uh, you know, a fun scene. I actually thought her American accent was better here uh, than when used in the club in the previous episode. Um, I liked her in the glasses. Yeah. It, I, I know that Tara Butters, who's one of the, uh, the showrunners, uh, her kind of elevator, not pitch, but Pete, what I think they call in the biz as a log line, mm-hmm. um, it was Alias in the 1940s. And this is a scene where Haley Atwell is not overacting in a negative way, but there's just a little extra kind of oomph in Peggy Carter's character of Dr. Ruth so-and-so from the health department. Just right. a little extra shine on it, which is a grin to the audience because we're having fun and she's saying... Hey now, I've got. I better not find cheese in any of these milk trucks, and it's just yeah. part of the fun. It's part of the kind of dress up, undercover conceit of the series, and it's it's uh, just a ton of fun. Indeed, um, the agents of the SSR, meanwhile, are inspecting the rubble uh, from the Roxon explosion, uh, and they uh, come to find that it is steel fused with wood and concrete so there's nothing magnetic about this there's something happening at another level that they are not familiar with but all signs point to stark because he's the guy who can come up with these things um meanwhile back at the office susa reveals um there was a photo snapped of the blonde at the office and they think they might have an angle on her. So they're closing in on Peggy Carter as she's trying to close in on the bad guys. When it comes to desk work, Sousa certainly knows how to march on. Ouch. (laughs) Act 
two begins with Sousa, of course, conveniently needed in the basement to examine a 10-ton ball of Roxxon. Uh, Carter, you know, Carter, uh, meanwhile, is called by uh, Thompson to uh, handle something for him, the sexist bastard that he is. Uh, Peggy, of course, calls Jarvis to make sure that he gets rid of the Vita Ray-soaked car that they were last seen in so that they can cover their tracks. It's great to see uh, Thompson and Chief Dooley here kind of, um, uh, not to repeat myself from earlier on the podcast, but just to see them kind of doing the due diligence of their job. It's something that we've seen in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well, where just because a character is in opposition to our hero uh, does not make them a villain. And... I mean, Dooley and Thompson, definitely sexist, definitely pigs, definitely not using uh, using Peggy Carter to the best of her abilities as a professional. But they're on top of this Roxxon thing. They're shaking down the lead. They're offered some some booze in, uh, in uh, the Roxxon head's office. And um, one look from Chief Dooley, Thompson puts that, that little sippy sip down. It is 1045 in the morning, though, Matt. Um, there's some uh, subtext here between the uh, the Roxxon businessman who was never formally named there um, and uh, his wife that Stark came between them. He also had refused the sale of this particular refinery to Howard Stark, if not because of the bitterness between him and his spouse, but he knows about the formula for molecular nitramine. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Peggy is trying to retrieve what she believes is a photo identifying her at the club that uh, Sousa is uh, trying to verify. Yeah, it's a fun little scene. Her, you know, tiptoeing along, crawling along, taking out her little handy dandy uh, gadget. If you, if want to call it that of uh you know different keys to break in there and the phone's ringing it's it's a fun scene it's a reminder that this is not a show that wants to be wallowing in tracheotomy bad guys shooting people and you know 1940s sci-fi weapons of mass destruction sure that's there but you know it's about action it's about adventure it's about enjoyable viewing and it's a it's just a super fun scene yeah, and that's what I've enjoyed about the first several episodes of this show. I'm a little ahead of you in terms of what I viewed to this point, um, Matt, and our audience. But I, it, I don't know how you do it, Pete. <laughs> I, I don't know how you do it. I guess it, that's that. That's like the cone of science. I don't want to know. <laughs> that way, I don't have to testify against you. It it knows how to have fun, um, and and that's one thing they've remained true to, as dire as it's gotten, and. You know, this this project rebirth file and everything there. And, you know, before we know it, uh, Sousa is turning around and, you know, Peggy's got her feet up on the desk. And, oh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll head out in the fields to go uh, brief the chief in this rocks on head here. Of course, she gets told that uh, the government's got good taste in secretaries. <laughs> There's, of course, that that killer line as well. What's your name, honey? Agent. And it's just like, yes, that's right. You know, down with the man. Fight, fight for your rights. Um, but of course, Pete, she's not even there to kind of fully brief everybody and give her point of view as a professional. She's there, Pete, because she's a lady, and there's some other ladies at Roxxon 
who just need to be scanned with the Vita Ray scanner. So she's there on account of being a lady. Right. She's also determined in a quick montage in the bathroom that the um, the Vita Rays will stick to something like a wristwatch. She has to discard her wristwatch. She either said, sorry, Nana, or sorry, Anna, when she tossed it into the um, into the trash can there. Maybe it was um, Hannah. Yeah. Or Banana. Oh, there you go. Um, but she's scanning the workers. Uh, Thompson is as well, and they're clearing them one at a time. And, of course, we recognize uh, through a quick flashback that one of them is the scientist she blinded, the one who could talk, not with a special Stephen Hawking device, <laughs> um, at the Roxxon refinery. Um, Thompson, however, after a pause, clears him and we're immediately led to believe for a second Wade is Thompson in cahoots but as is true to the character he means to do good he's just pretty much clueless Peggy reveals that a hot shower would wash this off uh, the individuals but it would stay on their clothing and other items longer were they allowed to change and that's of course when this scientist decides to foot it away from her. And Matt, how's that play out? Well, the, the, the male agents from the SSR, they go all brawn, chase him down. She uses mostly brains and a little brawn to stop uh, Mr. Van Ert. Uh, and uh, by talking to the Roxxon chief and say, saying uh, stairwell and just, you know, wa not wanders, but kind of makes her way with a purpose down the stairs, borrows a briefcase uh, from a passerby to then just give a heck of a wallop to, uh, to Van Ert. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there was, you know, kind of her, her, her jaw was set as she hit him, wallop him right in the knee, have him trip just in time for, uh, for uh, Thompson and Do uh, Dooley. To uh, yep. to you know apprehend him you know or, or kind of you know get on top of him get out the handcuffs and uh, you know she kind of has had this moment where yeah I just went down some stairs and swung my arm once here's the guy you were trying to catch right you know that agent Carter really knows how to bag the bad guys and she tells the chief you know let me know if you need any further assistance. <laughs> Act three, Matt, is all about the carrot and the stick. Uh, Chief Dooley has placed before Miles uh, Van Ert um, one of those carrots that's pretty good with the rods and the cones. Fighter pilots used to eat a lot of them. They would help you with your vision. And uh, he explains that, uh, of course, you should believe me. I'm in law enforcement. <laughs> Um, and he says, uh, we want the name of your employer, Miles. And, um, you know, otherwise I'm going to bring in, uh, Agent Thompson and he's not here to make you talk. He's here to make you sing. It was a wonderful scene given the Peggy Carter by, by nature of the, the character and the story, you know, the, the, the story arc that she's on where she kind of has to have, you know, a smile on her face despite being disrespected. Um, she can't always go to dark places, but the show can. And the minute that it was like a table and you see some wood and a vegetable and you're like, well, wait, that's a carrot and that's a stick. And it's, again, an instance where the audience is slightly ahead where you go, 
oh, it's going to be like the carrot and the stick. They've just shown it to us literally. And then just the conclusion of that scene where, okay, Van Ert is not taking the figurative carrot, so Dooley takes the carrot out of the room. And Thompson now is going to use the stick on Van Ert in some way. Um, probably somebody, I suspect, that the network was probably like, this part where it says, and Thompson starts to beat him with the stick, let's do something different with that. Uh, Thompson tells him to bite on the stick and then proceeds to use, uh, use his fists on him. It's an absolutely wonderful dark edge to an otherwise light and effervescent show. We get back a little bit to the, uh, the Captain America um, adventure program. Uh, which is on at the automat as uh, Angie is still trying to work um, Carter to uh, to room near her. Um, and, you know, if only uh, Captain America was there to to rescue me is uttered by the faux Peggy, um, to which, of course, our agent Carter uh, says that this is rubbish and we agree with her. Jarvis reveals that he left the uh, the car in question with the uh, Vita Ray signature in Hoboken with the keys in the ignition. So presumably that's no longer a problem. <laughs> um, Thompson, meanwhile, after his interrogation session with Miles Van Ert, reveals he's going to need a new stick. Immigration has no record of Elite Brannis, which is a name they have now turned up, even though we already know Elite Brannis is in play from the earlier bit of the episode with the man in the green suit. Um, and Peggy and Jarvis are headed to Cedar Grove, New Jersey, as the other agents of the SSR have now uh, figured out is the destination of one Shelton McPhee. For all the um, action-oriented uh, portions of the plot, whether it's you know outright action like the uh, the beating of Van Ert uh, or you know fight scenes, chases, etc., I love that in this act we're still able to pause. It's a very touching scene with Angie, the automat waitress, where it's clear to us why Peggy doesn't want to get you know a roommate or or a neighbor or to kind of become friends with Angie, given the, what happened to, to the last roommate. Uh, and wonderful touching line from Angie, Angie talking about the place that uh, Angie lives, but it appears Peggy does not want to live. Angie says, it's a great place, so I'm thinking it's me. Just a nice moment where it's like, oh, wow, Peggy Peggy is this, you, you know, fully, uh, fully realized person and not just some stone-cold killer. And she's got nobody in the world. And Angie just is just saying, hey, you know, let's let's be friends. Simple as that. Absolutely. And really want to point out the um, the actress who plays Angie, you know, really shined in these two episodes, no more so than in the second one. Um, and just want to give a shout out in terms of the performance here. Um, this is uh, Lindsay Fonseca, who's, you know, been in Kick-Ass and, you know, she was on uh, How I Met Your Mother but, you know, really in a in a period drama like this is um, shining through in every bit with what she's given in this, um, you know, particular episode and in the early series so far. 
most you can do as an actor, take the part that, that is given to you and, uh, and go with it. Pete, after the act break, uh, Peggy is now in good old New Jersey, Cedar Grove, New Jersey. And I love that as she approaches uh, this cabin, of course, she's found that it's that's where the milk truck is. And it's got the, the Vita bombs in there. Wonderful juxtaposition of the Cap radio show where yep. the Peggy analog needs to be saved by Cap. And now in the real world of the story, uh, Peggy is the one uh, doing the keister kicking. Right. And as we, of course, Matt, in the radio business know the power of words, the phrase defenseless is used towards the faux agent Carter, the, the nurse Carter, if you will. Uh, character on the radio program and as she is kicking the crap out of Sheldon McPhee she is anything but defenseless uh, you are right Miss Carter you betcha she is um, meanwhile Leet Brannis and uh, Jarvis have uh, converged and um, the interrogation as to where Stark's inventions uh, are invariably comes up um he wants protection and uh the subject of leviathan comes up for the first time with agent carter and uh jarvis who might know a little bit more about leviathan than he's letting on at this point uh it's not a who but a what and uh they are not leet Brannis's employer at least not anymore um, Leviathan only wanted one thing from Stark, uh, Brannis reveals, but we do not find out what that thing is. Jarvis points out that McPhee has left. He has gotten, um, you know, they, they, he's gotten away. They get in the truck and, uh, it was great way to break the tension here. Uh, Jarvis is sitting in the back amongst these presumably, hundreds of glowing orange orbs and explaining that it's okay. The explosives are distracting him from the smell of stale milk. I believe that is what the British call an understatement. Uh, Pete, I like to, as, as the next scene unfolds, uh, yes, McPhee has gotten away, but uh, what do Thompson at all find McPhee kind of standing with the chair still strapped to his back courtesy of the handcuffs kind of huffing and puffing along as the uh the rather rotund mr mcphee is having difficulty mcphee looks back sees the car coming it's just kind of this oh fiddlesticks look in his face so what does he do he just keeps running down the road because you know maybe you cannot run the car um all this kind of juxtaposed as uh peggy and jarvis suddenly have to deal with uh, a fight involving the milk truck and uh, the green suited man well, at least McPhee played here by um, at least a face you might remember, probably not a name. The actor's name is Devin Rattray. You might have recognized him, though. He played Buzz in Home Alone, and he wasn't left home alone here. He took the chair with him. Um, but after, of course, uh, Dooley and Thompson have stumbled upon him, um, you know, the action back on the milk truck uh, you know, Jarvis hopes that for God's sake, they will stop shooting things. Um, you know, Carter explains this is where she gets off. The truck goes into the water. Uh, Carter emerges limping and there's a fantastic explosion. 
um, with the molecular nitrimate. Um, Brannis, however, can't speak because his little um, device there has been broken. Um, and uh, he explains that Leviathan is coming. Um, the uh, idea that there might be some help in stopping them. He draws in the sand. Peggy wonders, is that a heart? We never fully get what it is. There was some speculation he might have been making an attempt to draw the Hydra symbol. Um, but as the sirens were blaring, it more so looked to me, and we know this is not the case, that he was drawing the Ebola germ. <laughs> yes, people definitely assumed that it was Hydra. I mean, the notion that what, there's going to be a reveal that Hydra is out there on the heels of, we know in 1947, which I believe is when the uh, the Peggy Carter uh, scene, which opened uh, Agents of Shield season two, was you know we know she's going to go after Hydra to mop it up. Although that might have been at the conclusion of 1945. Regardless, the notion that there are there are Nazis and Hydra still out there, it would not be a huge reveal to those people. Wouldn't be a huge reveal to us. So I'm going to bet that um, I'm going to bet it's a bit of a fake out. Uh, and that, I mean, let's not forget here, as as episode 102 is fast wrapping up here, we are fast getting to the one quarter mark of this this story, of this eight episode story. Um, so I'd bet that, you know, I bet that they get to who that is, whatever that symbol represents, they get there darned quickly. Definitely. Um, the idea here at the end as they are, you know, dragging the lake and, Hey, he used to go skinny dipping in here as a kid and, uh, you know, some agent, uh, busting back and forth, you know, this is, this is chapping Thompson's ass to wit. He's asked if he wants some baby powder and they find the footprints. Also, uh, Sousa turns up a, uh, a keychain from what looked like Hotel Cosmopol. And then, uh, you know, we're, we're getting the bonding scene there between uh, Jarvis and, um, and Peggy as he's stitching her up and offering her the support um, that really uh, pairs nicely with that earlier scene where she was worried about the damage she inflicts on others when they get too close to her, um, which leads us to this scene with uh, Angie looking for an apartment. And uh, Matt, you know, never travel below 23rd Street. Boy, don't we know that. Um, <laughs> indeed, uh, Peggy is now uh, prepared to move in uh, into Angie's building. Um, Peggy makes the reference uh, that uh, she's never had to interview for an apartment before. And uh, indeed, at the Griffith Hotel, that's how it's done. She has to uh, kind of say the say the things that the uh, rather schoolmarmish proprietor of the Griffith Hotel wants to hear, including how long will you live here? And her answer is, just until I can get married. Right. And there's also reference to there's a strict 10 p.m. curfew and gentlemen do not go above the first floor, both of which I'm sure are there it, it, just as... Uh, rules to be broken in future episodes and oh man now jarvis has to sneak down the fire escape or now stark has to do this all while you know the the school marm is on the prowl should make for some uh, some fun stuff in the future 
and they call me spoiler Pete, Matt, and here you are revealing plot points from later in the series. Pete, so, I, I mean, I'm just making reasonable assumptions based on story <laughs> clues that that what you know it's 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 Chekhov's old lady that doesn't want young ladies to can you know uh, consort with gentlemen uh, after 10 p.m. etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. That's Indeed. just the way it is. Meanwhile, at the SSR offices uh the subject of the photo and matt who do they think is in the photo it's a joe dimaggio <laughs> which uh, oh. Peggy, of course says i'm not into boxing yeah susa uh is told by carter what did you bet against me um but meanwhile in the rubble what has turned up uh, it's the uh not just the bumper of Stark's car that was driven by Jarvis, but the uh, the license plate itself, which uh, the one SSR guy immediately says, you know, this is interesting or this is a this is important. Uh, yes. I guess because they have Stark's license plates memorized. Yes, and they also know that in the 1940s, the Department of Motor Vehicles was much easier to deal with. <laughs> Plus, I mean, it probably was like, uh, you know, a lot easier to look up to. We are, of course, going to go over the list of baddies and who's top of your list. Still unnamed, but our man in the green suit who is communicating back and forth with uh, a shadowy Leviathan character. This organization uh, sounds enough like a Hydra type of organization, but I think... You know, there there might be some differences drawn over the life of the series here in the next couple episodes. Um, the the menace is there, Matt. You know, when he uh, when he's taking care of people, you know, he he's he's killed two women in pursuit of this. Uh, he's he's killed uh, the the man in this episode. Um, clearly, he is going to stop at nothing to track down um, and eliminate as we know, all opposition. So um, I, I do really think we're going to see a, a deepened Hydra connection there. That's why I think what he was trying to draw, uh, Lee Brannis was trying to draw at the end, might have been a failed uh, attempt at that. It's uh, certainly time will tell. He, next, let's talk Lee Brannis. Uh, I kind of felt that as he was dying, he probably wanted to say, this is why I told you. I need protection. Uh, I kind of felt bad for the guy here. He's apparently trying to do the right thing. It's it still is unclear, of course, but uh, kind of pays the ultimate price. Still on the lineup, but uh, I, I doubt will be after this episode. Definitely need to talk about um, whatever is done to these men to keep them from talking in our next segment. But, um, you know, we will miss uh, Brannis as far as uh, being the bad guy. You know, he he was certainly the more talkative of the two of them. <laughs> that is that is very, very true indeed. He, one more I think worth talking about is uh, Thompson. Definitely kind of crossing a bit of a line there uh, as he uses uh, those fists on, uh, on an imprisoned man. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a little shocked. And obviously this show was far into production by the time the uh, 
CIA report about, um, you know, uh, military uh, intelligence interrogations came out towards the end of 2014. But I really kind of, uh, you know, was was taken aback by the upfront nature of the brutality of the interrogation there. And, um, you know, though we seem to know for the most part that um, this is kind of a pretty boy lunkhead out to, you know, just see what this guy knows. Matt, can we not rule out at this point because we know from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and we know from Operation Paperclip that Hydra infiltrated uh, the future S.H.I.E.L.D. back in the 1940s. Is it possible there are moles within this organization right now? I think if that's the story route they go, the show will be poorer for it. If they have the same arc as essentially the first season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is, you know, one among us revealed. Right. It's, I agree. It's going to be agree. boring. I mean, is it possible? Sure. Is it probable? I would say it is highly improbable. So I think we've got to take his brutality here as just, you know, a, a lay it all on the table attempt to, you know, find out what these bad people uh, might be doing with these bad babies. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a gray area, but I think he's going to he's going home and going to sleep at night saying I've done good for my country and for my fellow citizens. There you go. Classified top secret. Holy mackerel, Pete. We're going to take a gander once again at what the G-Men don't want you to know. Pete, what do you have classified top secret? How about the fact that uh, our bad guys in the series to this point working in the service of Leviathan have the physical inability to speak? Why do you think that is other than, of course, not revealing information? I wonder whether this this operation that has been done to them is, uh, you know, whether they they have allowed it or whether it has been forced upon them. Um, both kind of come with with a certain creepiness to it. I mean, the notion of, hey, welcome to secret agent camp, clunk, you know, clunk you over the head and you wake up. Oh, you can't speak anymore. Mwahaha. Um that's kind of frightening. And then the notion of, oh, I'm going to take a vow of silence because, you know, blank, whatever the reason is, that I would certainly assume they're going to explain uh, by the conclusion of this uh, this limited series. I mean, to do that to yourself or to or or rather to uh, allow it to be done to yourself, that's kind of incredibly creepy as well. So I guess it's just one of those things time will tell. The Y-shaped scar just seems so over the top. And the first time I saw it, it didn't even resonate per se as a scar. More so, I thought it was a tattoo, a marking. Um, so I just wonder why they're so overt with it. You know, you're going to ask questions about this person. And obviously, it's the 1940s and we were starting to get into these types of procedures where, okay, this guy's had his larynx removed, so he can't talk. He's got to use a little you know, uh, microphone style, uh, you know, uh, vibration device to talk, um, which was kind of cutting edge at that time. 
So it, it, it speaks a little bit to the tech end of it. At the same time, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see, uh, you know, why we would go to such links other than, again, the obvious. I think it's, um, I think it's a less obvious uh, um, deficiency that someone might have in 1946 versus today. You just think of all the, all the people after World War II who must have been uh, wounded to some degree. So if you, were, if you were to see, you know, guy on the street and say, you know, oh, uh, excuse me, where's, uh, where's the nearest coffee shop? And this guy kind of said, you know, kind of pointed to the scar in his throat and then, you know, made some further gesture to, to, to say he couldn't speak. You would just say, oh, okay, you know, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Just as you might be in, in line at the grocery and see a, see a, a man with, you know, without a hand or an arm or, or uh, uh, in Sousa's case, without a leg. You just say, oh, World War II. Um, so I don't think it's a glaring kind of weirdness, although the, the machinations as to why it's happened to these men certainly uh, I hope we find out more about. Pete, I have one more thing for you. Might be nothing, but as Jarvis is patching up Peggy, uh, you know, reinforcing that she was Cap's support, there seems to be a moment where he kind of goes from from uh, from you know medical attention to kind of noticing her knee, almost kind of his fingers brushing on her tea, a mo uh, on her knee, a moment of tension, Pete. Oh, definitely, and you know, anytime you're going to have a male character and a female character in the 1940s in a close scene like that, albeit medical, there's, you know, subtext beyond that. I, I think you have to have that sexual tension at this point to make it believable, the verisimilitude of who they are, uh, though he's a married man and she is essentially married to the memory of Steve Rogers. Um, you know, it's believable. Long distance. We want you to flap your lips, write a telegram, or even send us a Twitter. And indeed, Pete, we have a, a, a quick Twitter from uh, CrescentMoon621 on Twitter who uh, thanks us. She says, as I get ready for bed, just want to let you guys know I appreciate you staying up late to record your podcast. And uh, if you are new to our podcasts, hey, we enjoy doing these. The night episodes air. Yeah, sometimes it's a little late. Pete and I both were kind of like, oh, good, they're doing two episodes, and it ends at 10 o'clock, and we're going to podcast them both. But all part of the fun of this uh, of this uh, this uh, podcast here, so our pleasure, certainly. Matt, we say it all the time. We have the best listeners, and, you know, whether it's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., whether it's Agent Carter, it'll be, you know, Avengers and Ant-Man and Daredevil later on into the uh, the spring and the summer. We do this for you. So thanks for listening and uh, keep on listening. One way you can help us out um, is to go on iTunes and to give us a little bit of feedback, to leave us a comment. Uh, you may or may not be aware that the profile of a podcast is greatly enhanced by the amount of people that are enact, uh, interacting on iTunes. So you can really help us there. Give us a little rating. Give us a little uh, comment. We love to read them, and uh, we will read them on the air. That Pete, speaking of uh, being in touch, you're practically a person of glitterati fame. How can people <laughs> be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter. 
where 4,905 followers can't be wrong as Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. While I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the radio program by being in touch with Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with a P-H, and you can get in touch with us plenty of ways. You can send an electronic letter to us on the Gmail, post a note on the .com, or tweet us your telegraphs on the Twitter. Don't forget, Fantastic Geek is the way to go. Uh, another way to get in touch with us, which we've uh, actually resurrected, is our Facebook page. And in order to, uh, you know, get that uh, really up to par with our Twitter presence for the month of January, we are having a raffle. So every like that is registered in the month of January is going to be eligible for a drawing at the end of the month for um, a copy of the S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, comic number one, which debuted just last week. Um, so if you are a Marvel fan, that's something you want to get your mitts on. Again, all new likes to the Fantastic Geek, spelled P-H-A-N-T-A-S-T-I-C-K, uh, geek Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash fantastic geek, all one word, uh, will be eligible for that drawing. So jump on there. It's another way to interact. It's a different way to interact. Um, and uh, like us today, and you will be entered into that drawing. With that, I'll say goodbye, good night, good luck, one and all. What wacky words will you close with tonight? Crikey O'Reilly! Thank you.